As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Be the best and you got to pay a little price. If you want it bad enough, you got to do a little extra things to get it. Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodrigue, and with me, as always, my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond Rich. How we doing? Jordan, we are doing well. I'm excited because we don't have guests very often, and that's by design. We don't just want to put anybody on our podcast, right? I mean, it has to be something special, and I'm very excited about this. We're going to talk about a great book, first of all but a piece of history, football history, sports history, and specifically Los Angeles sports history. So let's get going. Yeah, so, so excited about this. Today we are talking to the two co-authors of the book Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. This book was co-written by Brittany Delacreta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. We know their work. We love their work. Uh, I obsessively follow both of these writers. Uh, really, really phenomenal stuff. Learned so much and and just about writing and life and, and everything uh, in between from both of these two writers. Um, Brittany, I'm, I'm going to read the back page if you guys don't mind. I want to gash you up a little bit here. <laughs> so uh, Brittany writes on the intersection of sports culture and gender. Their work has appeared in The New York Times, Sports Illustrated, ESPNW, um, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and more. Um, again, Twitter follows. This is where you find their work. Um, and, and they just do extraordinary work in, in the lens of, you know, this is, this is a book about women's history uh, and football, women in football history and, and the sort of little documented history of that. But they do work in spaces that reach far beyond the lens uh, of what we normally see in sports. And it's super important. Make sure you go give them a follow. Lindsay D'Arcangelo writes about women's college basketball and the WNBA for just women's sports and the athletic. Her articles, columns, and profiles on female LGBTQ athletes excuse me, on female and LGBTQ plus athletes have appeared in The Ringer, Deadspin, ESPNW, ESPN, Teen Vogue, Huffington Post, NBC Out, and more. Thank you both for joining us today. I hope you didn't mind that I uh, read your back page. I-, I wanted everyone to know just how phenomenal you both are. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> so this book, I can only imagine what an undertaking writing Hail Mary was not just because of the magnitude and importance of the subject, but also because 
there is so little that is known about this, I, I think probably in, in what you would classify as sort of the mainstream sports zeitgeist. And there was so little documented about it as it was happening. So can you take us through first the process of, of writing this book, which, by the way, everyone, you can pick up at most booksellers. I found mine at Barnes & Noble, even though we do say go support your local booksellers in your communities. <laughs> um, but what was the process like and how did this book sort of come to be? And what were the things that stood out to both of you as you went about the research process? Uh, I can talk a little bit about how we stumbled upon this story. Uh, Lindsay and I became friends through just, you know, sports writing communities on social media. And um, I know a lot less about football than Lindsay does. So whenever my work would uh, bump up against football, I would always be like uh, pinging Lindsay and running things by her. And um, we had an idea for a book about women's football history um, that was much broader than this. It kind of covered all uh, aspects of the game on and off mm -hmm. the field. And we put together a book proposal on that and it didn't sell because it uh, didn't have enough of a narrative arc, we were told. Um, but in the process of researching that book, I came across the Toledo Troopers, who I'm sure we'll talk more about. Um, and they are the, the winningest team in pro football history, men's or women's. And um, I, in looking them up and trying to learn more about them, there's, you know, some stuff out there, but I realized there was all of these teams that they were playing. And I was kind of like, well, who are these teams? And uh, we really couldn't find much. And I think it became really clear to Lindsay and I pretty quickly that this was the book that we needed to write. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, that opened up the, the research question, <laughs> which um, I don't know if Lindsay wants to talk more about that. Yeah. So Basically, what we did, we how we approached is we we split the teams into we split the teams between between each other, and then um, we just kind of dug in and really, really went full on into reading old newspaper articles. You know, um, just that's kind of where we we gathered all of our initial information. And once we started finding articles uh, about teams and players we were able to get names and then we'd take those names and do some research and some Facebook stalking. Um, all of these <laughs> women right, right now are in their mid to mid sixties to early seventies. So, um, you know, a lot of them aren't you know tech savvy. So it took a lot of just blind messaging and cold calls, uh, introducing ourselves, getting them comfortable and, and trusting enough in believing who we were, who we said we we were, and were really legitimate um, into this project. And just one by one, once we started talking to different players, they would tell their teammates and it just sort of kind of unrolled from there. But yeah, the research itself was kind of just... Um, you know, little by little things started unfolding and then um, it would lead us to something else and then something else, another player. And they had a bunch of memorabilia that they have saved over the years from ticket stubs to game programs, to jerseys, to pictures. We got, a, we got to see a lot of, um, of 
of stuff from that era and from the time that they played. And that helped a lot, giving us visuals and um, just more familiarity with the players. But yeah, that's basically how we sort of put it all together. You know, something that was interesting to me, and, and the, the book certainly delivers on its title, which is Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. So there's there's plenty of, of narrative in there about the league itself. But uh, the two of you get into such amazing detail about these players. And these are people who, uh, for various reasons, we don't know very much about if you're a casual football fan. And you really take us inside their lives, who they are as people, who they were as athletes, um, which is extraordinary. There's so many great uh, anecdotes in there about these these people um but Lindsay, you you hinted uh, just a moment ago about maybe some reluctance and i know that was mentioned a couple times in the book about how um maybe they were concerned about being interviewed at all or they were concerned about how, how they were going to be portrayed or uh, who might be talked about in the book why why do you think that there was um some reluctance there it seemed like some people were very willing to come out and share um but others maybe you had to coax a little bit out of them uh what what were their feelings on that. I'm sure it wasn't universal, but what were the some of the things that you encountered in, in terms of trying to get them to tell their stories? Well, I think part of that goes back to how they were treated largely by the media in the night and, you know, during the time that they played, which is the early 1970s. Um, and just how, you know, the kinds of questions they were asked and uh, they, it, that I think had more of an impact, a lasting impact. But um, for me personally, I, the the player that I struggled the most with just getting her to kind of trust and open up was Rose Lowe. And she actually played for the LA Dandelions. Mm -hmm. uh, she was the team captain. She was very instrumental uh, in the team, um, very supportive, uh, just has done a lot over the years to keep uh, all the, uh, all the teammates in, in touch. And I had spoken to a, a couple of her teammates and they kept saying, you've got to talk to Rose. You got to talk to Rose. She's, she saves up. She saved everything. She knows, she knows everything about the team. So I, I emailed her to no response. And then uh, one of the players gave her my telephone number. Uh, we ended up exchanging a couple of text messages initially. She was kind of feeling me out. And then we had a, an initial phone call where I really felt like she was vetting me, you know, just a, just to get a sense that I was really who I said I was and that um, Brittany and I were going to handle her story and the, the larger story of the NWFL with care. Um, and once she realized that I was on the up and up and that our intentions were good, um, she, she, we scheduled a, the a phone chat for the, for an interview and it just went from there. And she sent me a package full. I mean, really a lot of this book wouldn't have been, would have been incomplete had it not been for some of the documents that she supplied um, to us and some of the photographs and just additional information. It was just like a treasure trove. It was so great. And then, you know, she just, we had continued, we had multiple conversations throughout the process. She, she ended up sending me care packages throughout the writing process. <laughs> yeah. And when we completed the book, she, she sent me a little uh, gift and, and then sent something to Brittany as well. And she's just become, she's done a complete 180. She's now very protective of us. When our fact checker was going through the book and had to call different players to just check on some stuff, he called her and she messaged me right away and was like, who's this guy who's who's double checking on you? And um, I had to tell her it was all good. But yeah, she that's a great example of just somebody who just really holds this time in her life so close to her heart and was protecting it, you know, as, as best as she could. And and just really came around and, and just 
her sharing her story. I just feel so privileged, not only with her, but with with everyone we spoke to. And question for you both too: the, some of the detail in here, and again to to our listeners, I want to make sure that this is presented in the proper context here because there is so little. First of all, there's so little reasonable documentation of this period, uh, you know, the the period through the 1970s, but also what what precedented sort of this league that it's when i'm when i'm reading this i'm i'm dog-earing the 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 pages and underlining things like details about in in, in earlier than the league itself you know the la times is out literally covering one of these uh sort of women's scrimmages and you guys have a detail in there about a woman who is a barefoot punter who punts the ball barefoot, and yet it's almost like a in a masterful way of juxtaposing the detail that you were able to find with what ended up being the coverage of the event itself, which was so reductive and insulting, frankly. Um, and I, I wonder in that throughout that process, and, and this question for both of you, as you're bridging those gaps and finding those details. And with Rose Lowe, you know, the detail of how she flips her hair up under her helmet and these types of things, as you're finding these details, but then also juxtaposing them with the actual coverage of the time, what was that process for you? Not just sifting through all of that, but also almost deprocessing it yourselves. I think that for us, there was no way to write this book without just facing the the coverage head on of what existed. Um, and I think we were really thoughtful in the way we structured this book too. Um, when you read this book, we open, you know, smack in the middle of the NWFL's season, you open basically in gameplay, the entire first part of the book really documents play-by-play action and gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was really intentional for us. We get into the character backstories later and you really learn who these teams and these people were, but their skill was mocked and doubted so much when they were playing. And even today, the idea that women could be good, legitimate football players is still kind of mocked. And so for us, we never wanted the reader to doubt that these women were football players and that they had the skill um, and ability to be on the field, which is why you meet them in, in gameplay first, you meet them as athletes. And then we can go back and like dive into the context and the larger backstory because um, we, we really wanted uh, to center uh, that that's who they were and this is what they did. And that was, you know, in part a response to the coverage that we were, you know, slogging through Lindsay and I were sending these things back and forth to each other um, while we were researching because it was really uh, shocking to see um, really just um, how degrading and demeaning and and sexist the the media coverage of these women really uh, was. And I know Lindsay also um, wrote a lot of the chapter in the book um, that deals with with the media coverage and those stereotypes. So I don't know if you have anything you want to add about that, Lens. Well, I'm sure we'll get into that more, but I just want to touch on Jordan's comment about the little details that that we added um, to personalize these these players. Like we we wanted you to get to know them 
um, and as, as though they were their, their old friends. And so adding these little touches, I think, was key um, in doing that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to some of that coverage that, that you were talking about and, and even how teams kind of struggled um, with, with that a little bit. But I, by, by way of, of getting into that, I um, want to talk about the history a little bit and, and especially the history as it pertains to Los Angeles, because there is some amazing stuff in here that, that I just did not know. And some of this is just because of the dates of it. Um, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not quite old enough to have uh, lived through some of these times. Um, so it was a fascinating uh, history lesson to go through it. But even going farther back, and we're talking about the 1970s here, uh, but you even go back to the late 1800s and, and talking about the, the first uh, documented game of, of women's football back when it was five. Five on five. You go back to 1939 uh, when you discovered the first full contact game was actually played in Los Angeles, uh, and and then you fast forward. Well, you don't fast forward. I'm fast forwarding for the purposes of our conversation uh, to uh, to the early 1970s, and and a man named Bob Matthews, who's a, a brother of of uh, owners of another team, who decided to kind of found, I guess you would say, uh, the L.A. Dandelions in in Southern California. Why the Dandy? Lions, you say, because Matthew's wife described them as pretty spring flowers that you just can't kill. I, I really, <laughs> I liked that. That was uh, something that I that I made a note of. But uh, the the history of this league, very very deep roots in Los Angeles, right? And I don't know that probably wasn't by design. But how did that come to be that that so much of this history of this league kind of runs through this this area? Well, 
I, I think I think mostly it it runs through Ohio's really the thread, right? Sure. Um, where this all began. If you go back to before the, the NWL started, you had a man named Sid Friedman who um, was from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. He was a, a promoter um, and a, a sports agent, um, quote unquote, because um, <laughs> some of that can be questioned. But he really saw women's football starting to take hold this like novelty, this curiosity. And as you mentioned, we document throughout history, different times when women have played or had tried to play and um, how it was short lived or how it had gotten represented or at schools when they, when they tried to form teams or did and how it didn't last. So leading up to that, um, he sort of was looking for the next big thing and he decided to start a women's football um, troupe, kind of like um, the Harlem Globetrotters and, and have them go around and play men's teams, you know, for, for, um, for a ticketed event where he could make some money. And what he found is when he put together a team is that there were some really talented women on that team and they could really play. Mm-hmm. And um he eventually, you know, formed uh, some other teams. He never got a full up running league off the ground, but he had his group of teams and, you know, there's a tie there because the Toledo troopers who are the winningest team in uh, football history, actually um, not just a women's league, but they were under his group of teams before they left and um, joined the NWFL. But back to your question, as far as LA is concerned, you know, that game that where you talked about the um, the barefooted punter, you know, mm-hmm. that happened in the 1930s and it blows people's mind. It, it even blew ours, you know, doing all this research and finding all these um, incidents of, of women playing football and, and, you know, doing, doing it well, but never just fully getting the opportunity to, to really take it as far as it maybe could have gone. And um, to see the league sort of start, because the owner of the LA Dandelions really wanted to legitimize the game and, and the sport for women is really a cool thing. And, um, you know, Bob Matthews saw what his brother was doing in Dallas with the Dallas blue bonnets and, and just saw some other teams around the leagues and thought, you know what, maybe let's give this a go. Maybe his intention and the intention of the owners at the time was to start something akin to the NFL and, and have it grow and be as popular, but Obviously that didn't happen, but um, yeah, the, the intention was there and the, um, the, the idea to, to really give these women a chance to have the opportunity to play a sport that they loved was, was sincere. I think it's interesting too, when it, it, you, you both of course do this so well, where the reader understands the juxtaposition of these two figures and how, yes, both were very important in the context of women's football in terms of the structure, the structures they created via these leagues and and all of that. But they also were so different in terms of perhaps their their intention overall. And then also the way that they w- went about trying to make this happen. And I felt that you showed the reader two very different methodologies and and how they they ultimately met results that I you know not I wouldn't say the same results but results that were similar because they they met pitfalls that were similar but they met them and approached them in different ways and I'm wondering if if you can take us through 
those two characters, you know, Bob Matthews and, and Sid Friedman, and they're, I think, vast differences. But again, you guys, <laughs> you were the ones who who did the research on this. But also, you know, ultimately, the the rich um, communities that that stemmed from both of these, you know, varying types of, of structures, league structures. We'll get into that in a minute. But I am so curious about how you've delved into these characters and then real recognize their differences and probably some of their similarities as well and how that also played a part in in shaping these leagues. Yeah, so we both got to know these men through different ways. I covered LA Dandelions was my team. And so I, you know, I got the history and how it all came about with that specific team and Bob Matthews as well. And then uh, I did uh, the, the history leading up to the start of the NWFL, the, the research for that and the writing for that. And so I got to know Sid Friedman as well. Brittany got to know Sid Friedman through covering the Toledo Troopers and mm-hmm. that whole um, interaction, which Brittany can jump on in here after I uh, explain a little bit about my side and my view. Um, I think they are both a part of women's football history. They're both an integral part, but they're, like you said, Jordan, very, two very different men with, who had two very different types of, motiv- of motivation. Sid Friedman was in it to make money and like, like it or not, he, he's just, he's without him. I don't know that the NWFL would have started when it did, or even had the launching pad for it at that time. So he's crucial to that. But uh, he was never in it to really grow the sport and, um, you know, find, create an equal playing field for women. Um, he, that just wasn't part of his intention. And uh, he also didn't mind the negative press from the media. You know, as a promoter, he felt that uh, any press was good press. And, and he, you know, it was going to get it however he could get it, making outlandish statements, as I'm sure you, you read throughout the book about the league and the players and the things they could do and the things he wanted to. And he would make these grandiose statements that were, were far beyond what the league, what, what his football team, sorry, uh, really were uh, as far as being successful and, and the amount of fans he was um, bringing in and the amount of money and all that. And then you have Bob Matthews, right. Who not only wanted to do this as a business venture and start a franchise, but he really he provided his players with anything. And Rose told me that, you know, they didn't, he paid for their equipment, you know, he paid for their travel expenses. Initially they were getting a stipend, which was only like 25 bucks a game um, before taxes. Uh, And um, (laughs) he did that as long as he could, you know, he, he didn't want them to have, he wanted to treat them like um, the athletes that they were and, and to be respected. He brought in excellent coaches to teach, those who didn't really know the fundamentals, which were a lot because these women didn't start playing until later on in life um, to really teach them the game and and the ins and outs. And, you know, he cared. There was a level of care there. And even when he had to relinquish the LA Dandelions down the road, it was a hard thing for him to have to do, you know, because he had this vision. Like I said, he wanted to create a league that was akin to the NFL. And um, he didn't want the negative press. You know, he wanted these women to be respected. He didn't, he was approached to do exhibition games with, with men's teams and personalities in LA, but, but wouldn't do it. Um, I also think that hindered him a little bit because being so close to Hollywood, he could have really used that as, as a promotional and marketing tool that he never really 
um, did, unfortunately. But yeah, they just were two different men cut from, you know, two different cloths, but both very much a part of uh, an important part of women's football history. Lindsay, you know, I said we we're going to circle back about some of the coverage and, you know, there's there's a lot of heroes in this story. But there, if there's if there's villains to be named, it's it's a lot of the reporters, quite frankly, who uh, when they when they did pay attention to this sport in this league they did it with a lot of derision and they did it with a lot of uh, they couldn't seem to you know write a story and and talk about these players without mentioning their weight or their looks or things like that and that always seemed to be the focus of of the coverage um it it seems like they found it very difficult uh, to be taken seriously. And, and I'm curious about that in the context of the LA Dandelions in particular, because you spent some time talking about, um, you know, kind of how they were marketed. And you, and you talked about here how Bob Matthews wanted this to be taken very seriously as a product, even maybe to the detriment a little bit of where he didn't embrace uh, some of these uh, maybe opportunities to, to put the players out there in more uh, Hollywood type uh, settings and things like that. How how frustrating was that um, to the players? It, it seems like there was no happy medium where they could be taken seriously as athletes, but also have their personalities put on display. It either had to be one or the other. It seems like they either had to be sexualized in some way or they had to be dismissed completely um, as athletes. So is, was that as frustrating to them as it as it as it was to me reading it? Oh, yes. Incredibly. But at the same time, they sort of had to take what they could get, too, because a lot of these players saved newspaper clippings of these articles. And, um, you know, they weren't all like that, but they were far and few between. Um, So it's it's it was just a hard position for them to be in. You know, you want to embrace being talked to by a reporter and, you know, it feels exciting. But at the same time, if they're asking you, how you protect your breast, you know, time and time again, you know, that gets, that gets annoying after a while <laughs> and you want them to focus on the, on the game itself. Um, I think one of the first articles after the Dandelions debuted was just kind of the whole sentiment of the, of the article, the game recap was just kind of like, eh, you know, it, they did better than we thought they would kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of that, Oh, they they can play surprise that sort of lingered, but also, you know, they the writers uh, were were men were men were male, and so they were viewing women playing football through that lens, and so there was a lot of nitpicking. There was a lot of, um, you know, like you said, focused on their looks, and um, and it just it it, it was the time period, right? That's that's basically what it comes down to um, is is if you look back at, in the 1970s, you know, women playing football and then it was just the time that this happened in, you know, yeah. where it, it, it was a negative experience. Do you, do you think it could have been different at all? I mean, was it just were they just up against such a, a wave of, of all this stuff that you're talking about? Just dis- dismissiveness and, you know, every, everybody wanted to reduce it to the common denominator of, quote unquote, women's lib. Um, what, I mean, is there anything that they and I don't mean the players, I, I mean, you know, the people who organize the league and the owners and such. Was there anything that they could have done uh, to, to overcome that? Or was it just it was it just the tide of, of like you said, the the times I'll let, I'll let Brittany jump in here I feel like I've been, <laughs> I've been <laughs> hogging the microphone a little bit here 
No, that's okay. This is all the the stuff that that you know a lot better than me. Although I will say, I don't know that there was anything that they could have done because when you talk to some of the players about the coverage, some of them actually said that reporters would just like wholesale makeup quotes. They'll be like, no, I like literally never said that. Or I never even talked to this person and media coverage as to, as it still is today, which is a thing that I'm often critiquing, like as a journalist, media coverage is so filtered through the lens of the people who are writing the stories. And often the people that are writing the stories reflect societal power structures. And so the, what we are reading is what is a projection of, you know, what the writers think. And so from a reporting standpoint, actually for us, a very big challenge was that normally we rely on archival research and archival documents and we assume that they're accurate and maybe the box scores were accurate, but the representation of the players and the reality and even what they thought when you're only being asked, what do you think of women's lib and how does your husband feel about you playing? And like, those are the only questions you get. Those are the only like quotes that we're going to have in the newspaper. And it's very hard to actually understand the perspective of the players. And so I think what's really interesting about this for us was trying to actually, we actually had to question the accuracy of our like source material um, and could not rely on it in the way that you would hope that you would be able to. And Brittany, I want to follow up with you on that because there is such intentionality to this as you have written it. And, and that, and you touched on it earlier at the, at the top of this conversation, I think top of mind is the way that, you both wrote about some of the things that are so um, football centric that we take as a truth of the sport, which is the, the interpersonal dynamics of dirty players, teams that get reputation for, you know, poking eyes at the bottom of the scrum or the bottom, you know, all of these things that, that, you know, broken fingers and, oh, you know, that like we, we talked about um, Rose Lowe tying her hair up because she had heard that the other team would yank it to, to try to tackle her. And these details that it's, again, when we contextualize the, 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 the effort that went into writing this, and I'm wondering if you can expand on this further, it's not, it wasn't just, okay, this was written about in, you know, the AP. And so, oh, you pull that detail out because um, that's what it was. Instead, it's almost pushing through the societal structure of what it, that the rep, the way that it was represented at the time, almost penetrating that and then reverting it into something that's so much more intentional because you're talking about these women in the context of what they're doing, which is playing freaking football. Right. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, that process, it, 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 it sounds exhausting, first of all, but second of all, there is such an intentionality as writers that must have come from that. Yeah. I think often about this newspaper article that criticized um, a game because it was low scoring and the the critique was that the teams had dominating defenses. And I was just like, I cannot imagine <laughs> like a men's team being criticized for having good defense because they didn't see as many like touchdowns as they would have wanted to. Um, and I think that's like really the double standard um, that these players were up against. Um, but yeah, I think for us, part of the ability to like go back and talk to the players about like what they remember 
is that none of this reporting was done through their lens. And for us writing this book, we really wanted the book to be told through the lens of the people who played um, while also bringing like from an, like a, from a writer's perspective or an author's perspective, this kind of larger narrative voice over the top that can contextualize all of the things into like the larger culture. So, so the players themselves are the, the micro details, the interpersonal part. And then us as, as authors come in and, and we add the kind of larger context to give it all meaning. Um, and I think that that was the goal through this in, entire process. And what's fascinating is, and I think so frustrating to both Lindsay and I, when we would read this coverage and then talk to the players is how interesting they were on their own and how smart and perceptive and how much they had to say um, and how great the coverage could have been if the reporters had just let the women be themselves um, the whole time, because they are interesting and like fascinating. And um, I think for me, one of the moments that you talk to them and, and I get chills is um, there were certain games um, that I would talk to players on both sides of. And, and one in particular is the game when the Toledo Troopers lose their first game. Um, you know, it's the beginning of their sixth season and they've never lost a game and, and they lose in overtime to the Oklahoma City Dolls. And I talked to players on both sides of that game and they remember that last play all of them. Like I knew by the time, like I had interviewed several players, I knew that, that they were going to tell me that it was a flea flicker play. Um, and I knew that they were going to like how clear that is, how crisp that is, how much they could give you if you actually would let them. And I think that was some of the most frustrating parts of this. And so the ability to let them actually narrate that for us felt like a real gift and a real like correcting of the record. It's such a universal truth throughout the dawn of time when people began throwing a, a ball around is if you lose on a flea flicker, it irks you for the rest of your dang life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. And, and yeah, Brittany, you, you, you being a, a very talented writer, you, you, you went exactly where I was going with this, which is it, it, it seems like as, as you look at the history of this, it's, it's a lost opportunity, right? Because there were so many stories to tell. Um, there, there were so many women in this league who they were, they were not doing this to become uh, famous. They were certainly not doing it to become wealthy because they were only getting paid. Some of them $25 a game. And, and near the end there, some of them didn't even have um, teams, you know, took away workers comp insurance because they were, they were trying to save costs. They were literally putting their lives on the line. Uh, uh, to play this game, I, I'm curious if 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 both of you actually could could uh, join in, and maybe you have different uh, uh, memories or, or different answers here. But uh, the the players who stand out to you, because this these go in different ways. I mean, you spend a lot of ta time talking about a player like Linda Jefferson, um, who's I'm, I'm guessing is a name that that most of our listeners here probably have never heard of, uh, uh, but should. And and then there's also a lot of you know, I don't want to say smaller stories, but but stories more about uh, what these women went through, you know, who they were as people, uh, why they decided to do this, their family situations. A couple you describe, their parents didn't even know they were playing until they saw them on TV. Um, if I, I would love for, for each of you to just kind of weigh in and, and share if, if there's a particular player who, who you will take with you maybe for, for the rest of your lives. 
Yeah, just um, an, uh, oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, a player who is mentioned in the book, um, you know, a little bit, but I actually connected with her towards the end, like during the fact checking process. And so a lot of what she told me is not in the book, but um, a lot of it made an excerpt um, that we ran in Sports Illustrated um, when this book was published. Um, her name is Linda Stamps. And she was one of the founders of the Columbus Paysetters. And um, I have gotten pretty close with her. She's one of those people, like each team had their like resident archivist who saved everything. And Linda was the Paysetters version of that. Um, and what I loved about Linda um, is that, you know, she grew up, she was a football obsessed kid, like to hear her tell it, she would plan her Saturday chores around the NCAA game of the week. Um, and the paysetters were one of the teams that started under Sid Friedman and felt very exploited and decided to like break off on their own. And they went under the, the ownership of the, the Toledo troopers and eventually broke away from that as well. And, you know, Linda was one of the, the people who, um, organized, she comes from a, a like a labor organizing housing, organizing background and, was able to like band the team together um, and they formed their own corporation and they bought the team from the men who owned them. And she talks about how as a woman during that time period, you didn't know what it was like to feel power over really anybody. And the first time she ever experienced the feeling of like having power over something happened on the field and that she was able to translate the power that football gave her off the field um, to be able to purchase the team. And I, I think that was like such an incredible story. And, you know, when the sports illustrated piece ran, she texted me and was like, if you had told me as a little girl that I was going to be the daily cover of sports illustrated as a football player, like you made my lifelong dream come true. Oh. Um, and I still think about that, um, but she's when she still texts me um, <laughs> during the football season, she would text me her takes on like all the games that were going on and I didn't have the heart to tell her I didn't watch. <laughs> but um, yeah. And, and Lindsay, I know has different, different players that she spoke with. Yeah. That's what's so great about having split the teams and getting, we got to know different players and then we got to share those stories with each other, which was just added to the whole experience overall. Um, but just to touch on your previous comment, just imagine how many feature profiles could have been written about all of these women um, mm -hmm. at that time that were just missed opportunities. But yeah, Rose Lowe is obviously near and dear to my heart. Um, she has become a friend. And, you know, a lot of these women have, have become friends uh, to us. But um, I, want, I want to talk about the Houston Hurricanes because they were a player owned team that was started uh, by a woman named Marty Bryant, who was just at the dentist and uh, happened to see Linda Jefferson on the cover of women's sports magazine and skimmed through it. Uh, it jumped out at her, the cover obviously, and uh, saw that there was a league and wanted to start a team. So, and she actually wrote the, the, the NWFL offices to see what she needed to do to start a team um, they were still, they were looking to expand and add more teams. And they said, you know, go ahead. Here's what you need to do to start. Um, obviously being player owned, they, they, Marty couldn't afford the uh, expansion fee. So that was waived, I think at the time, because they just wanted to add more teams to the league. But yeah, she just started this whole thing, uh, like on a grassroots effort, telling, talking to friends on 
her softball team, one of them being Billy Cooper, who, who was one of the, one of the best linebackers to play and played for the hurricanes. And then they just started getting women showing up who were in the Houston area, who, who had moved there for, for a job and didn't know anybody wanted to meet people showed up to the tryout. Uh, there were, there was, uh, uh, one woman who was walking in the park who who saw them trying out and, and decided to to play another who was there just with some friends and they they called her over and was like hey you want to join join up and play so it was just really great how their team came together and the other side of that though is you know they were they were uh, a, a, a pretty good team but not as good as say the Toledo Troopers or their rivals the Oklahoma City Dolls who were very good and the Houston Hurricanes would get pummeled by the Dolls every time they played them throughout throughout their four season run and just their their goal became to beat the the um the Dolls and eventually they did and it was great how they how the players recalled that happening and what went into the game and the strategy and how they were able to pull it off and also how they felt about it afterwards you know it put this this exclamation point um uh, on their tenure that it was just it's so great. And as Brittany said, just so rich to hear. Well, in all these teams as well, communities are forming and, and being shaped by the people within them. And so, you know, as you both are journalists, you both are phenomenal writers and storytellers and also journalists. And so as you sort of unearth facets of the communities that you're studying here, what were some of the things that you found um, it, through reading the book? And I'm, I'm not going to give too much away, but there's there's some really great passages about sort of the the connections and then also the disconnections by region. Um, there's parts where some of the the players are, are almost lamenting the fact that there's maybe not as much community because everyone's commuting, for example, uh, it, you know, maybe Los Angeles area teams or teams where uh, the practice schedule has to be a little bit different. But then also in the, in the middle of the country, you know, the teams that you both have just mentioned, building communities that you they could not maybe find in, in other spaces. What did you find about that aspect of telling the story? Yeah, I did not think that when I started uh, researching the Dallas Blue Bonnets that I was going to end up down like a rabbit hole of Dallas lesbian bar history in the 1970s. Um, But as a journalist and as a researcher, like that's kind of, to me, one of the most exciting parts of this work. And it became clear very quickly as I started talking to players who had played in Dallas that there was no way to tell the story of that team without also talking about the history of the lesbian community at that time um, and the, the connections between the team and and the bars. Uh, there was like five at one mm-hmm. point um, in Dallas. And, you know, we assume that there will be some players um, in the league that were queer Um the question was whether they would want to talk about it or whether they saw it as connected to, you know, their time in the league at all. And, you know, in this case, and not everybody did see it as connected, but in Dallas, many of the women really did um, because, you know, out of the bars, that was the only, really one of the only places at the time that they could like safely be out and openly gay. And those were their community centers. They organized softball leagues out of those bars. Um, you know, they had steak and potato nights on Friday nights and you bring your own steak and they would cook it for you. 
um, this was really their family. And so that that's how a lot of these women found out that the league, um, was, you know, happening and they, they saw the ad in the paper and went to tryouts and, you know, these bars also bought ad space in the programs. Um, they really, they supported the team. Um, and the, in many ways, the teams then became uh, similar spaces to the bars. Right. And -hmm. I think it's really like important to think about marginalized communities throughout history have been very good at creating safe spaces in a hostile world. And this is another example of that. And so, um, you know, all teams had some aspect of that and you, you can't, um, dig into each one in that level of detail. And they were all like unique. Um, but you know, for me, that was one community story that I was really uh, excited to be able to tell and really, uh, uh, make visible um that that part of the history yeah i loved how you got into uh, some of the dynamics of that and how they were you know different even on each team each roster even each year sometimes it was it's changed um and it, it kind of as an offshoot of that one one thing i was curious about because it, it got mentioned a, a couple times but the the relationship with the nfl um, because some of these teams, some of them were not playing in, in NFL mm-hmm. cities. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Toledo Troopers being a, a major part of the Oklahoma City Dolls. Uh, but you did have, you, you had Dallas, you had Detroit, you had Los Angeles, you had San Diego for, for a little bit of time there. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple times in the book how uh, there would be I don't want to mischaracterize it, but some type of rally or some type of, you know, brief public show of, of, of support. But how prevalent was that? If, if at all, uh, what, what was the, the relationship between some of these NFL teams and, and these women's teams, did it exist at all? And, and when you talk about missed opportunities, there was, was that a missed opportunity, uh, for, for the NFL to, to really, uh, promote that league? Brief would be the keyword there. Brief, these brief okay. public showings. <laughs> um, I think about right. So the Dallas Blue Bonnets played in Texas Stadium, um, which was the at the time brand new um, Cowboys uh, venue. And so you know, for these women too to like run out onto the field at Texas Stadium, where they literally watched their idols play on TV, um, they really felt like they had you know their dream was coming true, and it also felt like they were on the precipice of like this league being something. You know, um, I sometimes do think about how even though they would get like three or four thousand people to a game, how measly that number would look in that venue. Um, mm. But. Um, the Cowboys did from what I can tell, like the most to support their NWFO, um, counterpart. And again, like the bar is like on the floor. So, um, (laughs) the, the players, the NWFL players considered the Cowboys, like they're, they consider themselves a sister team. I probably, if you ask the, uh, the, the Cowboys themselves, they, they would maybe have not agreed. Um, but they did a joint pep rally. Um, and there was like a promotional photo in the newspaper of a former Cowboys player buying a ticket, um, to a blue bonnets game. And aside from sharing the venue and that like one pep rally, um, there's not much evidence that there was ever any financial support or anything else. And, um, in Detroit, the Detroit demons, played in hand-me-down practice jerseys from the Lions. Um, And some of the players were invited to some Lions practices, I believe. Um, But again, I can't see anything more concrete than that. Um, 
that really happened in terms of like support and the, the lions hand me down jerseys ended up being worn by four different teams in the NWFL over 10 years. So that should tell you uh, how the finances of the league were. They just kept getting passed from like team to team. Um, Those were probably the biggest direct connections um, that we can find. Um, Although, um, you know, Lindsay knows a little bit more about this than I do, but in, you know, Sid Friedman's teams, he hired um, former NFL players to coach. Uh, They were black men who couldn't get jobs in the league. Um, and that was, you know, Sid Friedman's way of trying to attract press and, um, you know, attention to his women's teams was by legitimizing them with uh, NFL players attached as coaches. Right, right. You know, one thing, I'm sorry, this is a, a tangent, but it, it was one thing that that um, kind of struck me a couple times in, in the book is um, you make mention of uh, the the L.A. coach, uh, Bob Edwards, being possibly the first black head coach in pro football history. And there's a couple references to that, um, either to him or to other uh, black coaches who were couldn't find work in, in the in the NFL. Um, was that was that prevalent or was that by design at all? Or did that, did that just kind of happen uh, because they were opportunities and these were qualified people who just weren't getting opportunities elsewhere. Um, it's, it strikes me as that that's a, a little bit of a tangent here, but it, it struck me as maybe a little bit piece of history that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Yeah, it, um, it was, it was opportunities basically. Yeah. Um, if, if the NFL was going to, to not give black coaches a chance or an opportunity to coach, well, they wanted a coach. And so they took the opportunities where where presented. But also, you know, it just speaks to the fact that women's leagues are often, not often, but they are just the more progressive, more evolved leagues. And, you know, it's it's shown that throughout history. And and the NWFL is just another example. You had gay and straight players playing on the same team. You had um, like you just mentioned, black coaches. Uh, eventually, there were women coaches who jumped from playing to um coaching the teams. And then um, further on uh, later in the years, when after the league folded and other women's football um, leagues popped up in the late um, 19 in, I want to say 1999 was uh, the first time it was uh, revisited again. And since then women have owned these football teams. So um, just a, just a really groundbreaking league. When you take a look at uh, all of these um societal things that were just so impactful and not really discussed. And they're, these women were trailblazers in so many ways and they were changing history in in so many ways, but at the same time, and, and you both did a great job of detailing all of the many, many nuances and reasons why through this book, you know, at the same time, there was a tendency, again, by the press, um, mostly, to almost be reductive in assigning them what their meaning was as it correlated specifically to, you know, women's lib and and all of that. But there was so much more nuance to it to the point where some of them at the time were also not wanting to identify as uh, associates of, of, of that movement in particular, um, and I wonder, first of all, if if we can unpack that a little bit, but then also as you revisited these conversations with many of these women, what they felt about what they now know their context was and is in history. Yeah, I think what was 
interesting for us as we read the newspaper coverage, right, was how often women's lib was mentioned. Um, and the players were very quick to, to write it off. And the reporters were just as quick to uh, draw the connections. Um, and I think that it's really easy to like look back from current day and be like, oh, well, the 1970s, second wave feminism, women's football, obviously these things are connected. And I don't think they're not connected. I think that there was a cultural moment and societal shift in which women doing um taking on roles or doing things that were like traditionally for men or that they had been historically kept out of was becoming normalized. Right. And so I, I think that it's probably not a coincidence that we end up with, you know, a women's football league and that maybe the cultural conversation created the space for that to happen. Um, but like on an interpersonal level, I think it, it's really easy um, to, to make people parts of movements. And I think that that's, that flattens history in some way. Um, because if you look at what second wave feminism was about, it was a very white feminism. It was a very middle-class feminism. It was a very, uh, domestic feminism that was based in like getting women into the workplace and like things about like housework and childcare. And if you look at who's playing in the NWFL, like many of these women are working class, they've had to work, um, many of them were gay and didn't have a husband at home or kids. Um, and so it didn't necessarily speak to the day-to-day -day, like lived experience that they had. And at the same time, you know, we call them unwitting activists in the book because as much as you can want, you can try to distance yourself from a political movement. The fact is that like change doesn't just happen on a picket line or like in an organizing meeting we, we move society forward. Change happens because somebody stands up and says, I'm going to do this thing that I'm told that I'm not allowed to do. Um, and that's what these women did. They wanted to play football and they did it. And just that act alone broke barriers and changed like the changed history. And so they deserve credit for that. Um, that. Yeah. Yeah, th there's a line in here. I think it was early in the book. Sorry, I, I just have this long page of notes <laughs> that I that I, I, I kept. And, and there, there was a quote in there, and I apologize. I don't know whether it was one of you who wrote it directly or was a quote, but it says, change happens because everyday people refuse to cave to societal expectations. And and that was something that kind of carried me um, throughout this uh, book and, and hearing about these women. Do you do you think, and again, I know this is not universal, but but do you think that they're, uh, the way that they process that has changed over the last 40 years? Do they see themselves uh, the same way that they did in the in the late 1970s? I think it depends on the woman. Yeah. There are some who will look back and say, I see now. Um, and I wouldn't have called myself a feminist then, but I consider myself to be one now, or I still wouldn't use the word feminist, but I like can see the barriers that I broke. So for me, that was my experience. Linz, did you have people that had different takes on that? I, I mean, I think I think what they realize now, uh, not so much on the, the, the feminist topic, but what they did was kind of groundbreaking and um, sort of paved the way for uh, the, the women's leagues that we see today and, and sort of, you know, planted the seed for the for that growth of women's sports to really take hold and evolve uh, over the past four decades. So uh, I think they, they understand that now. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of them were willing to talk and wanting to talk because they see that, you know, what they did was important. 
Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it, the, the title of the book, again, Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. And it was it, the brilliance of this book is the way that you, you weave in those interpersonal stories, but also talk about uh, the league and, and some of the challenges that it went through. And, and Rise and Fall is the perfect way uh, uh, to describe it. And, and one of the things that struck me was uh, how you, you, you mentioned uh, later in the book how, you know, you look at the NFL and the early years of the NFL were a disaster. Uh, in in finance and the, the number of teams that went in and out and how loose the structure was and everything else, but the the difference being that uh, that the men's leagues have traditionally been given a lot more rope in 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 ways uh, of sustainability. I mean, I even think as recently as you know, Major League Soccer started in the the mid nineteen nineties and went through a long period of time where it didn't see you know it, it seemed questionable for a while would it make it would it not, uh, but because it was so well supported by billionaires and by advertisers and TV money, it was given that time to, to grow and to, and to ultimately uh, succeed uh, a league like this. And, and as you describe, a lot of uh, women's leagues are not given that that opportunity. Um, Rose Lowe, there was a quote in there about Rose, from Rose Lowe saying that we were too early. And and what what how did you take that? Uh, it did is if this league had come around 10 years later, uh, would it have worked long-term or were there just such flaws? You, you talk about the lack of uh, a centralized structure. You talk about, you know, trying to grow too quickly. Um, was was there anything <laughs> that could have made this sustainable over a long period of time or, or were there just too many factors working against it? Well, just to answer your first question about Rose's quote, I, yeah. I think she meant, um, that basically saying that we were too early was was that she's looking at the at the women's sports landscape now and just how how much growth has happened and and just where women athletes are at in this day and age, and then comparing that to the to when their football league started and and so there's that you know kind of comparison going on. But um, I don't know necessarily think they were too early. I mean, it kind of happened at the right time and the right place, you know, when everything was happening with title nine and, and um, all of that, it, you know, and just women sort of going through the feminist movement, whether they, they knew it or not as players, you know, it was just all part of that. It was kind of like the, the perfect setting and then jumping off of, you know, Sid Freeman's creation and taking it a step further. You know, I think it just, happened as it was supposed to. So, um, but yeah, I can see, you know, there's, there's some regret there, I, I think, because, um, because they look at it like it was a failure when, when in actuality, like it was just something that was, was pretty great that existed for, you know, from 1974 to 1988. Um, and at his height was, you know, a lot of fun and, uh, you know, such a great experience for them. And I, I don't want, you know, Rose to feel like, you know, like, like that she failed at something, which I told her, you know, mm. all of this, but, you know, it was the owners really um, who just were short-sighted and, and weren't looking in the long-term, you know, men's leagues throughout history have been afforded two main luxuries and that's money and that's time. Right. And for whatever reason, well, we know why, but women's leagues just are not given that same investment um, in capital or in time. And the, the, the owners just, when they started the league, they went about it 
in the wrong way. They were expecting a return on investment right away. They're expecting it to catch on and and turn into the to a NFL type of thing sooner than it really could. And there was also the fact that the teams they started with were were not in close proximity to each other, where they could really have you know interleague play. You know, right. travel costs were a big issue. Um, banking on the fact that the novelty would last, you know, and then fans would come who, who were curious, but then that curiosity wears off. Um, and we also saw that with the media coverage. At first, there was a lot. But as we went into our research into the later years, when you got into the 1980s, late 70s, 1980s, you know, the articles were sparse and few and far between. It just became just, you know, the novelty wore off, like I said. So there, there were a lot of things, the, the lack of promotion, the lack of marketing, the lack of being smart with the finances. Um, it just, it all went into it. And, and just the lack of really slugging through those hard initial years to begin with, where you're not going to make money, you're going to lose money. Um, and just thinking, well, you know, this is it, instead of giving it time to really grow. And before we close, my question for you both, and it's not going to be a simple answer, of course, but where does women's football go next? Um, we see the rise of flag football and seven on seven leagues. Um, we see players who are, are getting recruitment offers and playing at a community college or, um, you know, F- FBS, FCS and FBS level at this point. And, and still, there are still obviously too many firsts, I think, but what happens next and, and where do, uh, want to and passion from from young women as they grow up and, and love football, where can that meet the structure of making this possible for them? I see like two main things when we talk about what's facing women's football today. One, I think is a broader question that is facing the game of football as a whole around, um, you know, traumatic brain injury and the safety of the sport. Um, and whether anyone should be playing the game as it's designed currently and um, whether, you know, like gender equality, um, you know, in a sport that maybe needs an overhaul for itself, like how that fits and where the line of like overly paternalistic trying to protect women and like letting them take informed risk with, you know, their bodies comes in. And I think that that's a that's a question that football as a whole is really going to have to grapple with. Um the other thing about the, you know, women's football as it exists right now is it's, there's so many leagues and they're not under like a centralized, um, uh, like group, right. They, Mm -hmm. they, there's several that are doing their own thing. And I, I think, um, there are some people that want the NFL to kind of step in and, and start a women's league and support that way. And there's others who are like, ah, there's all of these problems with this men, this league that was designed for men. And it's just like putting a men's league on top of a women's league. Really the answer we can see with like the abuse scandals that the NWSL is facing now that sometimes structures that were designed for men should not just be, um, you know, uh, applied directly uh, to women's leagues. And that's something that the, the women's, uh, teams and leagues and the people who are playing the women's game right now is really having to ask themselves is is what does it look like for us to come together um, under like one league and how do we do that? And I think the community has a lot of like disagreements about what that looks like right now. And that that's a big question facing the women's game. 
I also just received a, a timely email today in regards <laughs> to this question um, from from Sam Gordon's uh, camp, who is who who came to popularity because uh, she was an incredible um, youth football player, a girl playing on a boys squad and videos of her went viral. And she has she's like, uh, I want to say in her early 20s now or maybe um, late teens, but um, she started uh, a Utah girls tackle football league um, in her, in her home state. And is now I just got this email about her joining with Under Armour and starting football camps and creating uh, the first ever women's football cleats, um, which is so cool because you don't think about, you know, women's football equipment having to be different, but obviously, you know, there are some things that do need to be different, such as, um, you know, your foot size and everything like that. But um, it's just cool. It's cool seeing that, you know, there is a future that's there and and that where women's football can still evolve, whether or not we're ever going to see a, a pro league, one, one single pro league that, that catches on. I don't know. You know, there's this whole um, view still that, that women playing football, this violent sport, you know, this masculine code sports is hard versus is a, is a hurdle for, for society at large to get over. I think, um, you know, basketball, soccer, kind of, kind of different finesse, finesse, more finesse sports. That's maybe easier to, to come around to, but yeah, I, the future is there. The future's, you know, bright, I guess you could say. And, um, you know, you have people like Sam Gorin who, who want to continue to grow to sport and it's, it's great to see. Also you saying that she is now in her late teens or early twenties made me feel older than I have felt <laughs> in a while. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but um, Lindsay, Brittany, thank you both. Uh, first of all, for your work and second for taking so much time with us today. Listeners, subscribers, you can follow Brittany on Twitter at B-R-I-T-N-I-D-L-C. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter at D-A-R-C-A-N-G-E-L-2-1. And of course, you can pick up their fantastic book, Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Uh, pretty much wherever books are sold, which congratulations on that, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, if you can find a way to support your local bookseller, please do so. Um, but these, are, it's just, a, it's a phenomenal read. And thank you so much for this insightful and, and wonderful conversation today. Yeah. Can, so I, can I just add one last little tidbit that yes, has an LA please. Dandelions tie for you guys? Um, there was a player on the LA Dandelions named Barbara Patton, who was an incredible linebacker. Um, she was a mother uh, of two and um, she used to bring her kids to practices with her. She couldn't afford childcare. She used to bring her nieces and nephews as well um, to practices and games. And um, her son, Marv Kiss, grew up watching her play and he ended up uh, becoming a professional football player himself, a linebacker for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, he also played for the Kansas City Chiefs and the Washington uh, Commanders. Um, he played for 13 seasons, I believe. So it's a cool little tie to, you know, show that, you know, mm -hmm. kids can look up to uh, their 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 athlete parents, you know, whether it's a, a woman or a guy and, and just, you know, learn the sport and, and become engrossed in the sport. Um, it's just a, a whole twist on that. And I just kind of love that story. 
Yeah, there's there's so much in here. Uh, it, it's it's a history lesson. It's it's a, a great storytelling, and then there's things in here that should make you angry too um, mm-hmm. about this story. So really appreciate the the way. I, I as as a writer, I was reading it through. Man, that the process of writing this must have been so fascinating, and and putting it all together the way that you did, uh, weaving the narrative. So congratulations on that, first of all. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us.